Father, we pray that you might capture our hearts, that we may know your word, and that your people might spread your word as the waters cover the sea. We pray, Father, that we may hear you speak this morning from your word, the the scriptures. We pray that we may understand and act accordingly. We pray, Father, that you may speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing through Romans, we're reading Romans 15, 14 to 24. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Well, friends, uh, you've probably heard the saying, the great Australian dream, right? You've probably heard this, uh, this saying, you know you're familiar with the great Australian dream. Uh, having a life goal, like you're the kind of big, what you're working towards in your life, the big goal of your life of owning your own house with a swimming pool, and a backyard, if you're lucky, backyard big enough for, to roll out your own cricket pitch. You know, that's kind of the great Australian dream. Well, actually, according to one social re- researcher uh, who does a lot of work in current social research, that sort of dream captured the aspirations of many people uh, 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 a generation ago. But the younger generation coming up, uh, generations today, uh, it's kind of going out the door a little bit, that particular aspiration, partly because it's so impossible in big cities, in Sydney and Melbourne and uh, bigger cities, to actually get a house. They're so ridiculously expensive. Um, and so, but those kind of, that big Australian dream is being replaced by other kind of dreams, big aspirations for your life, big visions for what you want to do with your life. Young Aussies, uh, 
apparently, according to this research, like the flexibility of not owning a home because their dream is not to settle somewhere but to travel and uh, to actually have the flexibility to move around easily. Interesting stuff to think through, but... Uh, and and to, to think about these big kind of dreams that we have for, as, a, as cultures, as societies, but there are more kind of personal dreams that we have, aren't there? More personal ambitions that each of us has. Often they're to do with family, kids, um, success in your career, maybe the next gadget or whatever it is that kind of gets you going. Uh, a dream of kind of finally uh, making it work, getting control over your time or your environment, uh, the dream of an easy retirement. Uh, we'll think some more about those as we kind of go along, these visions that drive us and capture us. There's lots that's good about them, isn't there? There's lots that's good uh, about them. But in this part of Paul's letter to the Romans... Uh, he gives this really stunning insight uh, into... He kind of opens his own heart up to the people reading this letter. Uh, and he gives this incredible insight into what his great dream was, his great ambition, the thing that fired him up and that drove him on. It wasn't the great Australian dream. It was actually a great global dream, uh, we started to see that last week. If you were with us last week, we looked at the, the previous passage. That's what we do here uh, week by week, working through, looking through, reading through um, books of the Bible as God's word to us. Last week we read that passage just before this. Paul finished off that section of his letter, if you remember, uh, by dealing, he's dealing with divisions in the church. The church that he's writing to, he knows, is kind of a uh, at some kind of a fracture point over these disputable matters. And he, and he said last week, if you were here, you'll remember, the ultimate motivation for pursuing peace in the churches is not actually for our own sake. Remember what it was? It's actually for the glory of God. Uh, God's great eternal plan is to gather a global people for himself, a people from every nation, into this incredible new society of the church. So when his people pursue peace, that's what we, we've been looking at, when his people pursue unity and peace uh, so that they can with one mind glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when that happens, it brings God glory. It shows that our hearts are in tune with his heart. It shows that we kind of get what he's on about, this great mission of gathering a people to himself, a diverse range of people. It shows that we value what he values. But the, this great plan of God that Paul's been opening up for, last week he kind of lifted the lid of this huge, great, uh, eternal plan of God. This great plan of God doesn't just impact the way that we relate to each other in the church. It's not just about church unity. For Paul, it changes everything. Uh, he knows he's been swept up in this great story that's bigger than himself. Uh, he has confidence that this is God's plan and nothing can stop it. And yet at the same time, at the same time as that, he knows that God graciously works through his people. God works through his people. He isn't just kind of swept up in this big story so he can sit back and put his feet up and enjoy the ride. He knows that he becomes an active player in it. 
uh, his plans start to get shaped by God's plan. And he wants the same for those Christians reading this letter. Firstly, the Christians in Rome, but uh, as he himself knows that this uh, will be copied and circulated, the Christians through the ages. He wants the same for them, not kind of reluctantly, not kind of with our teeth gritted. Uh, He wants the same in grateful response to the great news of God's love for us that Paul has been going into over and over again through this book. Paul is an apostle. He, he was chosen for a particular purpose. He had a particular job to do that we don't have. And you notice as we read through here, he doesn't ask the Roman Christians to do what he's doing. He doesn't ask them to do exactly what he's doing. But he does want them to share his heart, to share his motivation, to be swept up in God's great story so that they can, in whatever capacity they have, whatever opportunities God gives them, so that they can take their part in it too. Well, it starts by, uh, as we read it, and hopefully this will come uh, up on the screen. Sorry, if you, uh, you might need to flick back. Yeah, thank you, Corinne. Um, it starts in verse 14 uh, by recognising that they do know the Gospel. So what Paul's doing here, he's not telling them anything new He's reminding them of something that they already know. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. So Paul's confident. He's confident that they know the gospel, but he knows that it's all too easy to know something, to know the truth, and not let it sink into you in a way that changes you and transforms you. Uh, He wants to spur them on. He wants to remind them of this to urge them to let what they know to be true filter down to every part of their life. Uh, And he has this great boldness about them. You see that in verse 15. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe you've done one of those personality tests. I don't know if anyone's done a personality test. One of the common ones is called Myers-Briggs. You kind of answer a set of questions and they, it spits you out a number of letters that say who you, what sort of person you are, what kind of personality you are. Um, one of the personalities in the Myers-Briggs test is called ENTJ. If you're familiar with it, you probably know what that means. If not, don't worry too much. Uh, But this type of person is affectionately known as the commander, an ENTJ. Here's the description. ENTJs are natural-born leaders. They live in a world of possibilities where they see all sorts of challenges to be surmounted and they want to be the ones responsible for surmounting them. They have a drive for leadership. They are take-charge people. Famous ENTJs are Napoleon Bonaparte, Margaret Thatcher, Bill Gates and Harrison Ford. Just for your information. And praise God for ENTJs, right? If you're an ENTJ, praise God for you. God makes us all differently in his image. And you ENTJs make us INFJs stop dreaming and actually get some work done. So thank you. Uh, but, But friends, is that what's going on here? Is that what's going on here in Paul's letter behind Paul's boldness? Behind Paul's... Does Paul's boldness come because he is an ENTJ? because of a particular personality type he has. Is that where this kind of 
incredible boldness comes from for the gospel. Well, did you notice how he puts it? It is an incredible boldness, but it's not a boldness like any other. It doesn't come from a kind of natural self-confidence. This boldness actually has nothing to do with him. His boldness comes, did you notice, from the grace God has given him, from the duty that God placed on him. Uh, He has been shown incredible grace. Firstly, to see Jesus for who he was, if you're familiar with Paul's story, that great moment on the Damascus Road. But secondly, to be, not only to see Jesus for who he is, but to be given this particular role in God's great plans, to be what he calls the apostle to the Gentiles, the, the one who God was going to use to spread the gospel to the nations uh, so that they would become an, a, an offering pleasing to God. He uses this kind of Old Testament uh, temple sacrifice language. You might have picked that up. He talks about himself being a priest and the Gentiles as an offering to God. Uh, the thing, the, I think why he's saying that is because in the Old Testament, if you're familiar, the, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were actually excluded from the temple. Um, they could only come into the outer courts around the temple. Um, but now that the fulfilment of God's plans has arrived in Jesus, the one that the Old Testament was always pointing towards, uh, all, all, a big part, all part of that, part and parcel of Jesus' coming, was to bring in this new age where the Gentiles come right into the heart of God. The Gentiles come streaming into the people of God. And Paul knows how huge this is and how uh, unworthy he is for it. But he doesn't have a kind of false modesty. Um, He doesn't have a kind of, you know, the kind of false modesty that's really driven by fear. He's full of this boldness, but it's a grace-driven boldness, not a self-driven boldness. Verse 17 Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the powers of signs and wonders, through the power of of the Spirit of God. Uh, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ." So what's going on here? Paul, Paul knows that he has been swept up into this great story of God, the great plan, eternal plan of God. Uh, and he knows he's kind of been dumped centre stage <laughs> uh, through no merit of his own, but he realises that he's right at the centre of at this turning point in human history to take the gospel to the nations. He's not afraid of acknowledging that, but he knows that he has no credit to take at all for it. He doesn't take any credit. He has no interest in himself. He just wants to speak of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. And what Christ is doing is leading the Gentiles, the nations, to obey God, to come under his good, gracious, life-giving rule. And he he knows that that's happening through the preaching of the gospel, as it's in in Paul's case as as an apostle testified to by signs and wonders And through the power of the Spirit of God, it's through the preaching of the gospel of Christ that the Gentiles are going to come under the nations. And that gives Paul this great boldness. But do you notice as we keep reading, it also gives him a great ambition. It gives him a great boldness, it gives him a great ambition. Verse 20, 
this wonderful insight into what is driving the apostle. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Uh, Friends, gospel work can never stay still. It never gets to the point of saying, finally, we've, we've done it. We've made it. We can sit back and just coast along. Um, I remember learning about this when I was at school, and I, I'm not sure it's actually true, but I'm going to say it as if it is true. So if you're a scientist, come and correct me afterwards. Uh, but there's two forces called centripetal force and centrifugal force. Is that right? Although I've heard that centrifugal force is actually not real, but it's a kind of, uh, I don't know, you can explain it to me afterwards. Just imagine it is real. Uh, centripetal force, in my mind, and for the, for the sake of this illustration, <laughs> centripetal force is a force that kind of pulls towards the centre of a circle. Uh, and centrifugal force is a, a force that sort of shoots out from the centre. Sort of a pulling in or a pulling, pushing out. You can, uh, yeah, uh, uh, for, for the purpose of this illustration, that's how I'm defining it. So, <laughs> but it's easy, isn't it, to uh, fall into a kind of centripetal mentality as a Christian in, in churches, right? A kind of cent- uh, uh, an inward focused mindset. Once a church grows to a certain size, it can be easy for the energy to shift from going out to drawing in. Uh, but friends, if the gospel is true, Christ's people are always centrifugal. <laughs> They're always going out. They're always looking for new people and areas where the gospel is not known. What, why Paul's great driving prayer and ambition was to see Christ's people proclaimed, to pe- people in places where he wasn't known. That's why. Uh, it's not that there's a problem with building on someone else's foundation. We read in other parts of Paul, other parts of the letter of his letters, um, he kind of sees himself as a planter. He says in one part, I planted, Apollos watered. So he has this idea of himself. He has a particular job of going around and planting these new congregations in places and to people groups where Christ was not known. There's nothing wrong with being a waterer, building on, but... Uh, Paul's own calling was to be this kind of foundational planter, this, this job, seeing gospel churches planted so that more people could hear this wonderful news of Jesus and put their faith in him. And do you notice how he gives up his own comfort for that? He gives up his own comfort. He wa- he, uh, he's wanted for years, we're going to read in a second, he's, wa- he's wanted for years to visit this church in Rome, but he's had this overriding priority <laughs> this centrifugal thrust outwards that he knows is what is driving him. If it was up to him, he would have been in Rome years ago. Uh, But he gets the sense that this is about to change in verse 23. Um, Verse 23, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, presumably because he's seen churches established uh, through the region, um, there's no, he knows that his work uh, is finished there in that sense. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. 
I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a little while. He does hope to go to these Christians in Rome, but do you notice what he says here? Even that is just a pit stop, right? Even that is just a pit stop. Uh, He's finished work in one region and uh, all he wants to do is to head over to Italy and enjoy kicking... No, that's not... Enjoy kicking back on some nice coast. No. He's finished his work in one region and he wants to go to the next, to Spain. He'll spend time in Rome to encourage the church, be refreshed by them, but he, he wants them to know that he's just passing through. Now, as it actually happened, we're not actually sure if Paul ever made it to Spain. Um, likely, he actually did go to Rome, but in circumstances other than that, what he hoped, he was arrested and put under house arrest there. And different traditions will say different things. That possibly he, was, he actually ended up being killed in Rome. Uh, for his faith. But whether he made it to um, Spain or not, um, he had this desire that he knew that core to the logic of the gospel was this centrifugal force outwards and he would not give up on seeing that happen to the end of his days. Well, friends, how do we sort of think about all of this? Um, I hope you've I certainly have, and I hope as a church, uh, if you've been with us for the whole time, you've really gotten a lot out of this incredible letter that Paul's written to the Romans. Uh, it, it is possible, though, and sometimes I kind of get the sense of this it's, uh, with, with people reading Romans, it's possible to kind of break up Romans into different levels of importance. So you've got Romans 1 to 8, that's where all the gold is, right? That's kind of where the action's happening. 9 to 11... Uh, is a bit weird. We, we kind of learnt stuff about Israel and God's sovereignty. Um, chapter 12 kind of starts well, 12 to the end, it starts well, but really by the time you get to 15, you feel like you're, um, you can feel like you're losing steam at this point. Uh, but friends, we can't think like that, not only because every word in here is God's holy word to us. Uh, we can't think like that because Paul never separates his theology, Romans 1 to 11, really. He never separates that from his everyday life. His everyday life. Uh, if all that happens when we get to the end of reading Romans is that we know a bit more, then something has gone terribly wrong. We need the understanding. We need the great theology of Romans. But the great theology of Romans is always wound up with the great commission of Jesus to his people. Um, One writer has, I think, a bit cheekily put it. He's written that Romans is a missionary support letter with an extended introduction. Uh, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but you get the point, right? These verses that we're reading now, they're not kind of an unnecessary tack-on at the end. They're actually... Uh, Right at the heart of Paul's concern as he's writing this letter. If the gospel is true, then what has captured Paul's heart and what he longs and prays for to capture our hearts, to capture the hearts of God's people, is the great need, the great, even the great ambition of seeing that wonderful gospel shared with the world. Uh, friends, it seems to me that there's kind of two ways that we can, two extremes that this can drive us to at times. 
Sometimes you might be confronted with the example of someone like Paul in the Scriptures and just kind of be overwhelmed by it. I don't know if you ever had that experience. You kind of read this super-Christian Paul and reflect on your own life and just get a bit depressed (laughs) about how unlike Paul we are and maybe go through your Christian life with a vague sense of disappointment, something like that. That's one extreme. The other extreme, though, is um, to be really fired up and full of zeal, uh, uh, kind of following Paul's lead, but perhaps a zeal that is in the end more about you than about God. There is a kind of zeal that's misplaced, an ambition that seems godly, uh, but isn't driven by the gospel of God's free grace, uh, driven more by a desire to prove ourselves or make a name for ourselves, and that kind of ambition can cause real damage. What both of those extremes miss uh, is that real gospel boldness, real gospel ambition is totally unlike worldly boldness, totally unlike worldly ambition. It turns everything on its head. In Christ, God has done everything for us. He's done everything for our salvation. We are completely secure in him. In him there is no condemnation. There is no place to prove yourself. You don't need to prove yourself. And God knows your capacity. He knows your capacity. He knows your opportunities that are different from every other person's. The Christian life, this kind of gospel ambition, is driven by thankfulness in response to God's indescribable gift to you, not by a kind of anxious need to prove ourselves. But having said that, I don't want to minimise the, the call of this on our lives, of what Paul puts before us. It's a never a call that's kind of guilt-induced, right? It's never that kind of um, vibe. But in response to the gospel, it, the, the, what's put before us is this joyful, self-forgetful, bold ambition because we already have everything in Christ to make him known. Once we get that, once we soak ourselves in the gospel, and again, uh, why I think Paul spent so much time going over it before he gets to here, once we get the gospel, it, the question becomes, well, why should we seek to share the gospel? The, sh- the question becomes, where can we share this great and wonderful news? Who, who can we share it with? What are the areas where people don't know Jesus as Lord? And that's what needs to drive us into the future as a church. The next few weeks, as we read the rest of the letter right to the end, we're going to get an insight into what it looks like for God's people to partner in this great mission, to partner in it in all their various different capacities and ways. Um, but today, it's, as we reflect on Paul's heart, we don't want to just start with ways you can help and partner We want to start with the heart of the matter, which is the gospel of God's grace that gives such boldness once it sinks into you and such ambition once it transforms us. We need to pray, don't we? We need to pray that God will give us that. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's a new song for us. Um, It's a great song uh, written by a missionary, uh, a Chinese missionary called Frank Horton. It's called Facing a Task Unfinished. Uh, Frank Horton wrote it uh, as he was sort of facing a uh, number of setbacks in his mission work.
Uh, and he looks forward and he says, I'm, we're facing a task unfinished. It's a task that drives us to our knees, uh, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know him renew before his throne the solemn pledge we owe him to go and make him known. Uh, it is a, a, a great song. The tune hopefully will be familiar to you, so we're not going to spend time learning it, hoping you can just pick it up. There's a bit of a chorus that's added in which you'll get along the way as well. Um, friends, let's use this as a prayer uh, that God might do something within each of our hearts, that as uh, we've prayed earlier, that our hearts might be captured by this vision of the gospel, that um, slowly and but surely... Over time, we might more and more be shaped by God's heart for his world, this great gospel ambition to see Christ proclaimed in places and to people where he's not. So um, I'm going to pray first and then we'll sing. Let's pray. Great God, we do pray that. We, we know that this is a task unfinished and that drives us to our knees. We thank you both for the absolute confidence that we have because this is your plan and that nothing can uh, stop your plans. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things. But Lord, we do thank you too that you, you graciously draw us into your plans uh, to be active partners in it and players in it. Uh, Father, we, play, we pray for us uh, that you might give us your heart for the nations, you might give us your heart for our neighbourhood, <laughs> you might give us your heart for uh, uh, the people and places where Christ is not known and trusted and loved. And we pray that for your glory, we pray that for the salvation of many people, for the joy of the gospel, that it might spread to many people in many places. Oh Lord, we, that is a work that you need to do in our hearts, so we do ask you might do that even now, to renew our zeal for you and our vision for your great gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.